The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 17th chapter. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Those of you who are no longer children, do you remember being a child in Sunday school and VBS or hearing your mom or dad read to you Bible stories at home and hearing stories about Jesus performing miracles, healing miracles, and then asking the question, what happened next? After Jesus healed this person, well, then what did he do? Then what did she do? And of course, the parent or the Sunday school teacher probably had a bit of, ah, well, I bet they went on to live their life. They loved Jesus, and look, it's time for bed. (laughs) But the kids have the questions, don't they? Didn't we when we were children, right? I remember wondering, well, I wonder what the deaf mute, after he was healed, after he could hear and speak again, what in the world did he talk about with his friends? with his family? Did he clarify previous arguments that they'd had and they didn't understand what he was trying to communicate? And he said, no, you remember seven years ago? That's what I was saying, and you didn't get it, right? What about the paraplegic who couldn't walk? Doesn't say that he went on a journey. Doesn't say that he walked around town. I bet he did those things, though. I bet he enjoyed the use of his legs, a use that he had not had before. But the biggest question that I think that a kid or an adult even could ask after the Lord Jesus healed these people is this. Did they become followers of Jesus? Did they become, as it were, Christians after he healed them? We know that in several instances Jesus says, don't tell anybody about what just happened. And that's kind of an invitation, it seems, for them to go and tell everybody about what happened as they did. Word spread about him like wildfire. But my question, though, is their excitement about Jesus, their thanksgiving over the magnificent thing that he had done for them, did that turn into saving faith? Did their devotion to the giver outweigh, as it were, their love for the gift that he had given them? Well, for the most part, we're not told. It doesn't really say. You can only guess or hope, but we don't know for sure. But in today's lesson from Luke we get a rare example of an account of what happened next after Jesus healed someone. Now, we know leprosy is no light matter. It's not acne. It's not just some sort of skin rash. It wasn't just unsightly, but it had the potential to deform the person that had it and had it for a while. And on top of that, it was infectious. They didn't know much about germs back then, but they knew the more you stayed away from the people that had it, the better off you would probably be. And so it's no wonder that in Leviticus, what we'd call now chapter 13, had extensive rules about this, about what to do if you had leprosy and what not to do. 
You had to be quarantined, set apart from the rest of society for a particular point of time, length of time. There were social consequences to having that awful disease. If someone was coming your way, you were obligated, if you had leprosy, to yell, unclean, unclean, which is a very straightforward way of saying, stay away from me, don't get close to me. Yes, it was more than a skin rash, this disease, and the implications were far-reaching. And thus, for these ten people, these ten lepers in Luke's gospel, they had a very great need indeed, did they not? And of course, Jesus meets the need, doesn't he? His reputation, like so many other instances, had preceded him. They knew who he was, they knew what he could do, and so they go crazy when he's in earshot, crying out, have mercy. And he does. His response is simple. Go show yourselves to the priests. Now, this miracle stands out, or it stands out obviously, in at least three ways from other miracles, right? In the first place, it's more than one person getting healed. It's not just a solitary person coming to Jesus with a problem, or a parent on behalf of a child, or a master on behalf of a slave. No, it's a group of people. In the second place, the healing's not immediate, right? Jesus doesn't say, boom, you're healed, look at yourselves, now go show yourself to the priest. No, he just says, go show yourself to the priest, and it's on the way to the priest that they were healed. And the third is that there is a split reaction to the miracle. In this group of people that was healed by Jesus, they don't all do the same thing. The one... As the story is essentially about, he stops, having realized he's been cleansed, turns on his heel, goes back, and he worships at Jesus' feet, while the majority continue on, presumably to live in the excitement of not being lepers anymore. Now, when you think about those nine, the nine that were going on, I think it's fair to maybe have the initial thought, well, what's the big deal? What's the problem with them? and what they did after what Jesus did for them. Who can really blame them for going on and not coming back like that one Samaritan to worship at Jesus' feet, right? Aren't they just doing what he said to do? Jesus didn't say, hey, go ahead, go show yourselves to the priest. You're going to get healed on the way. And once that happens, once you get healed, I want you to stop, turn around, and come back and worship me. He did not say that at all, did he? He just said, go show yourselves to the priest. And what's more on top of that, do you think Jesus was healing these people so they could stay quarantined, stay isolated from the people and the things in the life that they loved and wanted to do? You know, when I hear this one, when I read it, if I'm being honest, I can sometimes picture myself, to be quite frank, more in line with the nine than with the one that stops and turns back. I can see myself doing the same thing. But the more I think about it, though, the more I realize that if I were in that situation and I did do what they did, it would not be the new Adam, the new man in me, driving the bus, but it would be, of course, the old man, the old flesh. And what's more, just because something's descriptive of me, or of you, of us, doesn't mean that it's necessarily a good thing or the right thing, right? If someone were to say, for example, I like to eat. Just pulling that out of the air. Doesn't excuse gluttony, does it? 
So just because I recognize my personal instinct and draw towards ingratitude or taking for granted the good things that God gives me and being distracted from God as an effect doesn't mean it's okay just because it describes me. Enjoying life, taking pleasure out of this world and this time and the energy and resources that God has given each one of us individually, enjoying life, it doesn't have to be a bland thing. Blase, passe. To use an example, God did make seasonings to be put on food, so you don't have to just have a chicken breast boiled in water and have no taste with it when you have your lunch today. But what's not good is when those seasonings, so to speak, hold our attention over and against the God that gave them, the God that has given such spice to life, as it were. In the Catechism, we call the things that are created that we enjoy and have first article gifts, right? First article of the creed, God is the creator, God gives, sustains, blesses, etc. And they come from God. And they are, moreover, not immoral in and of themselves. I'm not saying they are now or any other time. But when we love our possessions, when we even love our life more than we love Jesus Christ, the life giver, and we're off the mark. We are wrong. It's easy, of course, to like these things. It's easy, of course, to be distracted away from our Lord and to just to look at the things that he has placed in our lives, the things that he has graciously given us, the people that he has given us. They're tangible. They're physical. They're obvious. They are immediate. And, of course, we all know the things that make us happy without even thinking about it. We're drawn to those things naturally. But really, in the end, they are themselves far too fleeting and fickle for the devotion that we often give them. Many people who choose the world and choose the things of this world consciously over and against God, I think they often mischaracterize Christianity, right? They think of the faith, the church, as just being this narrow, constricting set of rules, a bunch of do's and don'ts that you've got to try your best to keep, and if you do one of the don'ts, or if you don't do one of the do's, just don't tell the pastor about it and you'll more or less be okay. And sure, we talked about this recently, of course there is morality. There are rights and wrongs and ethics and ways of life that we try and still live by and believe. We try to order our lives as Christians according to what God has said is good and bad. But avoiding the bad and avoiding the excess of what's good is not how so many people say constricting but rather it is something that is liberating, something that's freeing, something that is pushing away, something that has the power and potential to control us and rob us of the one true joy that our lives should be built around. And what's more, think about it from your own personal life. Do the things that bring you joy, the worldly, physical things and feelings and all of the rest of that, do they ever give you the complete and full and an ending satisfaction that you kind of think about or hope that you will have from them, at least at the beginning. No, they are themselves, if we're honest, temporary and fading. 
A few weeks ago, uh, we sang a hymn in church. I can't remember how many weeks, but it's by Johann Heinrich Schroeder. Any relation, Paul? No. But the stanza goes like this, and you probably remember it. One thing's needful, Lord, this treasure. Teach me highly to regard. All else, though at first gives pleasure, is a yoke that presses hard. Beneath it, the heart is still fretting and striving, no true lasting happiness ever deriving. This one thing is needful, all others are vain. I count all but loss that I, Christ, may obtain. Did you catch that line in the middle? The one thing needful, of course, is Christ. But then it's buried right there. All else, though it first give pleasure, is a yoke that presses hard. It's absolutely true. Chasing after, making the priority, the world and its things only ever produces fretting and striving. We are only ever going after that next fix, whatever that fix is. What is better? What's better is Jesus Christ and the eternal joy for those that have found themselves justified and forgiven in him. The rest and the satisfaction that people look for, they're only chasing things which are mere shadows and echoes of the great satisfaction, joy, contentment, and peace which is in Christ. By the sacrificial blood of Jesus, we have been cured of something that is so far worse than leprosy and all of the baggage that leprosy had. We weren't just ostracized from society. We were ostracized from God himself. But he has healed us, made us whole, made us right, made us good. He has forgiven us. And yes, he does also, along with that, provide us with those first article gifts of daily bread. But now with the aim and hope and desire on his part that that bread in its various forms should ever hold our attention the most. The gift is always much less important than the giver. Having the giver is what matters most. And so it is and so it should be in God and Jesus Christ. The daily bread that the catechism mentions, mentions clothing, food, shoes, drink, house, home, wife, children, land, animals, and all I have, it's fine. Receive it with thanksgiving. But don't narrow your focus on it. Don't let it put blinders on you to where you lose sight of the one thing needful. That is, don't be like the nine. Be like the one, the Samaritan. And while the rest were off to the priests, the Samaritan realized that somebody greater than the temple was there. And I think it's fair to assume that that guy, back to the beginning here, he did go on and he lived a normal life. He enjoyed things just like the other nine. He was back in society, but the difference was he had the right focus. He knew and believed that all that he had was from Jesus. And finally, in the end, all that he needed was Jesus. In his name, amen.